0: Let freedom ring, let freedom ring, let freedom ring, let freedom ring. Welcome back. I'm Bill Ayers and I'm here with Light Ilee, Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Aleem for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's signature theme song. Tom is a generous troubadour and an inspiring rock and roll man. He shows up in solidarity again and again whenever and wherever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in pursuit of peace and justice.
1: We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on folks from far and wide to come together and join us in our constant struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. We need one another, today and every day, in order to keep our freedom dreams alive and advancing.
0: Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the gentle meditation of a poem. And today we have two short poems on baseball from the prolific and brilliant E. Ethelbert Miller. The first is Seasons, and the second, the Zen of Baseball.
1: Seasons. Spring training again. Young players replace the old. The game is too short. The Zen of Baseball. Maybe we should play baseball by the lake. The motion of water as still as a pitcher waiting for a sign the surrounding trees standing like coaches and managers. Who wouldn't want to walk across the lake into immortality?
0: Our second regular feature is a free write, where you can pause the podcast and write wildly, without edits, on this prompt. When you were young, what sports or games did you like to play? Or did you like to follow? What early lessons did you learn from that experience? Okay, start writing and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your
2: response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast.
0: Welcome back. It's time for our feature, Reports from the Front Row, Pages from One High Schooler's Notebook. And it's a time when we talk with Lighty about issues in school and what's going on in her life. So, Lighty, it's good to see you.
1: It's good to see you, too. Uh,
0: I wanted to talk to you about a couple things. You're a freshman now, and you told me earlier that you're taking journalism and liking it particularly. What do you like about it?
1: Um, I like the amount of... Um, respect that we get when we are cubs for our school newspaper. My journalism teacher, um, he's a great, great guy. He, uh, just to give you an idea of his appearance, he presents the visual that if you gave him a nice, firm push on the chest, he would just topple over. What? I'm, I'm serious. He's like very like gangly and like he falls a lot, just like in the classroom, just kind of trips. What? He's like Gumby.
0: Well, um, I'll be damned. And that endears you to him somehow?
1: Yeah, I think he's very funny. Yeah, he ca- whenever he walks into our classroom at the beginning of class, he'll just clap his hands together and go, "Cubs, I have something like very special for you today." And the fact that he calls us cubs is just kind of sweet, you know? It makes me feel like seen and respected in a way that most freshmen don't get to feel cuz it's a really undignified place to be in your life. So so
0: You like writing, though. You are a writer, and you like writing.
1: I do like writing. I think it's one of my best subjects.
0: And I don't think of it as a subject. It's a way of expressing yourself. You're an artful writer, and you've always been a very good writer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've definitely received a lot of validation over the years of my life for my writing. Um, But a lot of the time, I feel embarrassed to share it with people, because... I don't want them to see me differently if they think that my writing is bad.
0: Well, it's funny because uh, you don't, you don't want to spend your life feeling judged. I mean, if you're writing how you feel and what you think and what you imagine, I mean, I think that's enough. But it's interesting because journalism, I mean, the daily newspapers are disappearing. and And so being a journalist is kind of a, I don't know, an edgy prospect. But I guess there are new ways for a journalist to work. There's podcasts, there's, um, you know, online kind of forums and so on. But you imagine yourself getting deeper into writing over the next couple of years.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And what do you like writing about?
1: Um, I, I, I like writing about things that um, mean something to me, but not necessarily to other people, because I like the feeling of trying to convince someone that something is meaningful.
0: For example?
1: For example, I think a little while ago I read an essay that I had written on this podcast. I think I read my essay about um, Zesty and Starlina, which was the um, dead bird and the desiccated clementine um, on the roof of our building. And I liked writing that because it almost felt like like I was arguing a case for those two things being... Meaningful in some way that they wouldn't be to someone else.
0: Well, it's enticing uh, for our listeners because it's true that you and I recorded that, but it has not run on our podcast and it's uh. going to be in the next episode. <laughs> um, and the reason it hasn't run is because we've had so many other more pressing things, but I happen to, I love that essay, but just to give people another little enticement, um, it's something you wrote last summer. Um, thinking about writing a college essay, but you weren't writing a college essay, you were in a workshop with kids who were much older than you who are working on their college essays. So I thought it was an interesting one and you did read it into our tape and we're going to run it in the next episode.
1: Yeah, I mean it was really it was quite fun to write and I I liked it because of what I just said because I felt like that the thing that I was writing about wouldn't be meaningful to someone else, so by writing it I had to make the person reading it believe why i said that it meant something to me
0: let's shift gears a little bit um you're taking journalism you're taking standard high school curriculum uh part of that is you are taking physical education right yes i am are you a jock no (laughs) why do you say it like that
1: um because i hate people who like sports
0: what wait what
1: well, okay, that was hostile, but I don't... I, I kind of meant I hate people in my grade who are good at sports. Does that make sense?
0: Not exactly, because, I mean, you're taking gym class, right? Yes. And right now it's swimming? Yes. And it meets the first period of every day?
1: first period of every day, So yes. you're in
0: the pool the first period of every day? Yep. Don't you like swimming?
1: I like swimming, but swimming first period in the school pool means that my hair and makeup and clothes and skin and just everything is just completely messed up for the rest of the day
0: and you don't like that part
1: i don't like it also my chlorine does a number on me like i know it's not exactly an original thing to say that chlorine is not good for me but like me in particular i've noticed my whole face is peeling off
0: but but what follows swimming? I mean, after the unit on swimming, then are you going to do track, or are you going to do soccer, tennis? What are the... Then what's upcoming?
1: Yeah, after swimming, we're doing none other than sexual education.
0: Wait a minute. That's not physical education.
1: It is part of the phys ed curriculum.
0: I'll be damned. But what I'm interested in is when you make disparaging comments about jocks and people who like sports, don't you, don't you do things like swimming, running, walking... I mean you have a sense of taking care of your physical being, taking care of your body, right?
1: Um I would say I have a sense of taking care of my body. I would not say that I would take free time to be like, oh, I should go and move around. No. I eat as healthily as I can and I um you know, I, I try to like take care of my skin and take care of my hair and my Body, but it, I uh, phys- physical education and physical like act, like rigorous phys- or vigorous physical activity is not among my favorite time pa- like passages of time.
0: Okay, but your your body is the temple of your spirit, so
1: my spirit to... does not like to run. Okay, and it it, does, it doesn't like to swim first thing in the morning. I, I will ne- like I can't convey to you the, the pain. Of waking up at 6.30 in the morning, driving to school, and then jumping into a unheated swimming pool.
0: Sounds great to me. I don't it's know. It's
1: really, really an experience that never gets easier.
0: Sounds tingly. Oh. Um, <laughs> there's one other thing to mention about sports, though, and that is that I remember when Kaepernick took a knee and you were much younger, you were very smitten by that. You liked that. And I got you a Kaepernick jersey. And I think you liked the idea that a sports hero was standing up for justice.
1: I did like it, and I found it fascinating that Nike chose to endorse him and that people started burning their Nike clothes, because I found the whole story fascinating.
0: And, and there are other people who've stood up like that through history. Um, and, and Serena Williams is somebody, I think, that you admire and so on. So what about that? What about athletes as, as people speaking up around social justice issues?
1: I mean, I think that a lot of people don't consider athletes to be like the most kind of politically aware or um, intelligent of people. So when you see them making a choice like that for something that they believe in, you're kind of jarred by it and in some cases, incredible, like delighted and in some cases, furious because if they're not saying the same thing that you believe in then you're angry because you're like this is sports, you shouldn't be like talking about politics but if you're not that person you're delighted because you think like this is amazing even these athletes are standing up for this belief
0: Well, but you know the other thing to remember is of course an athlete isn't just an athlete like you are more than just one thing one dimension, everyone should be political. Everyone should speak out. Later in the podcast, we're going to be talking to Dave Zirin, who thinks about these issues a lot. I'm going to go talk to David Zirin, and he writes a column called Edge of Sports, and I'll be right back.
1: All right, I'll see you when you get back.
0: Dave Zirin. Welcome to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom.
2: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm delighted. And um, Dave, for those of you who don't know, is uh, the sports editor of The Nation. He writes every left-wing magazine that has a sports section. David is represented, and more than that, even ESPN. But uh, Dave also has the blog Edge of Sports, which is a must-read if you're interested in not just sports culture, Political criticism of the culture pop culture and so on. So it's really great to have you. Thank you so much I'm thrilled to be here. I I love that. I've always been
2: curious about the name of the podcast under the tree Uh.
0: well under the tree takes its name from uh, The freedom schools in 1963 Mm. when the idea because I'm an educator. I'm a school person. The idea is that um, education can happen anywhere can happen in a community center a basement a porch Or just under a tree. People gather and ask important questions of the universe. And part of why it's such a thrill for me to have you on is you ask important questions every week. And uh, I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, I guess what I'd like to jump into, I guess first I want to say, how's the world treating you?
2: Well, big picture. It's treating me, uh, like a baby treats a diaper. Uh, you've got rising authoritarianism, the rise of the right, the Dobbs decision on row. Uh, and th- these are all things that make me absolutely furious in my day to day life. Right. Uh, you know, I'm either, you know, hitting a pillow or screaming into the wind or you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have a job where I can at least vent some of this either online no. or on the radio because that, that's really been my form of, of therapy. Uh, um on 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 a small scale level i mean my 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 partner is a teacher uh, who's a building rep, uh, working at a high school in DC, uh, seeing her work every day, keeping teachers safe, keeping mm. students safe, because that's what the building rep is doing, is working around COVID and making sure there's a safe environment right. for the teachers. So that, that gives me a sense of daily hope. Uh, my, my kids are giving me a sense of daily hope. So, you know, I'm focusing on the immediate to give me inspiration to fight on the big picture issues. And how old are the kids? 18 and 14. Wow. I was just
0: yesterday at my oldest granddaughter's 18th birthday. So off to college? Yes. Exciting moment.
2: Yeah, it is. (laughs) Just dropped her off uh, a week ago. Wonderful. And it was uh, as intense as they say, although she was also ready to get us the hell out of there.
0: Yeah, you know, when I dropped (laughs) off my oldest son, did you go to Brown?
2: No, I wasn't part of the Brown Socialist Conspiracy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a big one. My son went to Brown, and when I dropped him off, I stayed for three weeks and everybody was wondering who's the old guy in the freshman class i showed yeah. up at everything <laughs> I, was, I, I have trouble with separation
2: uh, clearly you know i'm the same it's a smaller scale but i wanted to stay uh one more night uh just in case everything was okay and my daughter was just like yeah you can leave yeah
0: exactly and <laughs> and, and and i kind of wanted to build a A little bunk bed in his room, but he wasn't having it. It's like the movie Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. Exactly. Um, So I asked you, how's the world treating you? Let me ask you, how are you treating the world? Well, I'm trying to
2: intervene in the world to the best of my ability uh, as somebody who cares about... Uh, issues of social justice, cares about issues of labor, anti-racism, Palestinian rights, you know, looking for opportunities to intervene where I can. And then there's trying to use sports as kind of this ideological Trojan horse, as a way to reach people who might otherwise not be into politics, but they're into sports. So a way to try to reach sports fans and get them into politics. And also, I have to say, reach political people and try to get them into understanding sports, because I think it's a really important lens to understand. Understand the world.
0: Say more about that, because that's one of the things that's drawn me to you again and again. Is you're inviting people to see sports not as some distraction, but as something central to our culture.
2: Well, imagine two scenarios. One is one person screaming about. Uh, democracy, and the in the other person is is yelling about uh, the need for a strong leader, authoritarianism. Imagine a conversation like red state versus blue state, and all the ways that we're divided up in our society. Back and forth, back and forth. But then imagine you can actually reach somebody and have a conversation about. Uh, corporate welfare by talking about the public funding of a stadium right. you know what do you think about this stadium imagine if you could speak to somebody about police violence and police brutality but you do it through the lens of of say Colin Kaepernick taking a knee right. or a local team taking a knee I mean it's an opportunity to have discussions that maybe you couldn't otherwise have because you're talking about them through sports. And I've got this film coming out, a documentary about the NFL called Behind the Shield, and try to do this methodically, like critiquing the NFL on questions of patriotism, on questions of right-wing politics, on right. questions of how it understands and shapes our understanding of health. Right. You know, the, these are all uh, certainly the issue of, of uh, sexism and violence against women, and how if we look at these issues through the lens of the National Football League, well, then what you're using as a political weapon is the most popular and important and dominant part of our culture, which a lot of people on the left understandably eschew Uh and say this is absolutely not for me. This is inherently right wing. You know, This is the equivalent of uh, having right wing politics fed directly into my veins if I take part in understanding or watching football. And my attitude towards it is much more, well these things, these sports, they don't need to be rejected. They need to be reclaimed. And they were ours before they were ever theirs. And we can use the fact that they use sports as this kind of right-wing sounding board uh, for our advantage. Because we can point out to fans who aren't all right-wing the ways in which the culture is manipulated by the very wealthy plutocrats and Trump supporters who own NFL teams. Yeah. So there's a lot there right. that we can work with. Certainly questions of racism are writ large right. in the world of professional football. And and there's so many. So this is just one example, though. But it's really all kinds of sports. The World Cup, the Olympics. Right. Right. Uh, there's so many ways in which sports are political that we can, that we willingly Sometimes on the left, remove ourselves from those conversations.
0: Right, it's kind of it's kind of organizing one on one. You have to meet people where they are, and a lot of people are in the stadium, like exactly. a lot of people in in the pews in church. I mean, mm-hmm. and to, and to pretend that that's somehow off limits for our ability to have a conversation is a little nuts. Yeah, absolutely, and, and we we have to
2: remember that you know in the late '60s and early '70s. Uh, people like Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, um, within the early 70s, Billie Jean King. I mean, these are people who are iconic to their movements, moments and to their movements. And, you know, I, I've had so many incredible experiences like going back and and unearthing some of that history from the late 60s and early 70s, which is much more extensive than just those icons and fed its way into uh, so many colleges and uh, universities and high schools and junior high schools. I mean, honestly, that whole period of the late 60s Is why I wrote this book, The Kaepernick Effect, which is really about high school and college students who took a knee and how it affected their lives because they were inspired by Colin Kaepernick. And the whole genesis for that book was I was having a conversation with John Carlos from 1968. And he said to me in a very offhand way, boy, there were so many people who raised their fist after we did like young people at, at athletic events. It became like a thing. And I was like, what? What do you mm. mean it became a thing? Uh, wow, that that's really not really a part of the history. That's right. That it had this ripple effect. And it made me think about all the stories that had come out about various high schools or colleges where people had taken a knee um, it, on the question of racial, and I want to say like in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, but it was really so much deeper than that. This one person I interviewed who took a knee, I said, "Why did you take a knee?" And he said to me, "Because I hate it was a white kid." And he said, "Because I hate racism." Mm. And I said, "Wow!" So you didn't do it because of Colin Kaepernick? And he said to me, "Who's Colin Kaepernick?"
0: Wow! Then it really gets spread.
2: Yes. You know, much deeper. And you know, when I asked people why they did it, much more, many, far more people said they did it because of the memory of Trayvon Martin than they said they did it uh, because of Colin Kaepernick. Right. But what I, what I didn't want was for that history to be forgotten, to right. be thrown down the memory hole, right. the way the history that John Carlos was describing me had clearly been thrown down the memory hole. So that's how I spent the first year of the pandemic, was calling people up and interviewing Beautiful. them. And I got to tell you, for these high school students who were at the time remember like we were all trapped at home right uh they they were happy to talk sure you know and some of that was grew out of their isolation cuz you know that young generation you know they want to text they want a message they're not right. trying to talk on the phone <laughs> right you know if i call my kid uh they're like, what's wrong? What's yeah. the matter? And yeah. I'm like, nothing's the matter. I'm just calling. And they said, well, then you should text. Exactly. Because a call means an emergency. Exactly. Beautiful. But, but, yeah, but these young
0: people were willing to talk. That's a that's a beautiful story. And you wrote a book with John Carlos. Yes. And t- tell a bit about that.
2: Well, it was an experience the like of which I, 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 I don't think I'll ever exceed um.
0: Called the John Carlos
2: story. Yeah, the sport John the John Carlos story, the sports moment that changed the world. And Beautiful. Actually, we're here talking right now at this uh, Socialism 2022 conference. The first time I ever spoke with John on any sort of dais was at this conference. Um, I had interviewed him repeatedly for a newspaper I worked for that was a black owned paper called the Prince George's Post. And we became really good friends just from doing interviews. Mm. And it was at the time the 40th anniversary of his fist it was 2008 and you know i was coming to this conference and i was asked to organize a panel and i thought to myself boy this is a real long shot will john carlos want to go to a socialism conference and he he leapt at the opportunity and um when he came here it was i'll never forget the first thing that happened was someone ran up to him and said can i take a picture of you uh w- where we raise our fists wow and john Carlos. it was like we were in the hotel for 10 seconds and John Carlos looks at me and he says, every damn day. Damn. And, uh, and then he did the picture. He was very generous about doing pictures, everybody. But he would never raise his fist with people. He instead, his motion was to point at them nice. while they raised, raised, their, raised their fist. And I asked him about that. And he said, well, I already raised my fist. Right and but I knew another reason why he did it was because he didn't want to feel like he was performing for people. You Got know what it. I'm saying? Sure. Like, like hey, you raise your fist. Yeah, raise yeah, your-. yeah. Like he didn't. He wouldn't do that. Didn't so want he's a, clown a tr- about it, didn't but- want to clown about it. Tremendous amount of pride, but also tremendous patience. But then we get in front of the dais, and I'm not just saying this. He killed it. We had hundreds of people there and he was talking as if he had a cocktail in his hand and was just holding court with five people at a party. It was unbelievable. And I was like, holy cow, this guy's one of the best public speakers I've ever seen in my life. And then John approached me about doing a book and I said to him, I think you're an amazing public speaker and I will do this book with you if you'll commit to me to going on tour. And Going to cities to think to to really think it through and think about events and politics and how we want to present it If you'll collaborate with me nice about doing that like taking it on the road, then I'll do the book nice and doing the book was so easy because we would we would press record and I would ask him one question and he would just do what he did on that panel and just start telling stories and he has a million stories. Yeah. And stories are what make good memoirs to me. Like, don't tell me, show me. Yeah. And he just had these amazing stories, like stories that were wild about, like, like from raising a chicken like it was a dog <laughs> to his experience, uh, not being able to swim because of the color of his skin, like being kept out of the pools. Right. Even though that was his first ambition. I mean, so, so, school, so um, seeing Malcolm X on the street in Harlem and running down the street asking him questions. Wow. Uh, being called into King's hotel room in early 68 when Dr. King was deciding to support their boycott of the 68 Olympics. Right. And he remembers verbatim the discussion with King, like these really incredible stories. Beautiful. And all I really need to do, we needed to do was then organize them for the book. It wasn't the case where I was just like, oh, there's not enough material here or, you know, trying to pull stories out of him or anything like that. Like he'd been waiting to tell this story for 45 years.
0: Right. And I, I heard him at that point and I've heard you speak many times, but I'll tell you the first time I heard John Carlos speak was in a park in Oakland right after the Olympics. And Mm -hmm. um, he came and it was a large gathering, mostly African-American and he was brilliant. But what I remember most vividly was that we sang, we shall overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire thousands of people, um, and I thought to myself, a time is coming when this will be the national anthem, wow. <laughs> you know, rather than the war anthem. But it, it was such a moving experience being in a park and experiencing John Carlos and Tommy Smith was there too. That's right amazing. after the event, yeah.
2: One of the things that that that's so amazing. It is amazing. What a story! What year was that? Sixty-eight, I believe. But oh.
0: you know, the thing that the the other thing to note. <laughs> is that the attack on Smith and John Carlos at that moment, as usual, it wasn't them who they were after. They were after the idea that this idea would spread. And it did spread. And, And maybe the attack on them. But I always feel this way when... When the attack comes on somebody like Edward Said or Susan Sontag, they're not the target. It's a mm-hmm. high school teacher in Nebraska. You know?
2: Exactly. It's the same that someone once told me. It was very wise about um, about HUAC and McCarthyism. It's like what gets all the publicity and the memory is the attacks on Hollywood. But th- those were actually quite narrow. Right. And it was used as a precursor to go after teachers in New Jersey and construction workers in Texas. Exactly. Like, it was, like the Hollywood thing was like this uh, warning right. to tell the country in the most high-profile way, none of you are safe. Right. And it was similar um, in this uh, research for a talk I'm doing here on the conference, which is called uh, Playing Through Fire, Athletes in a Time of Reaction to talk about what is the social responsibility of athletes if we're living in a time of you know, growing authoritarianism uh, and violence. Um, I look at the experience of, of the Arab Spring, right. and one of the things that we don't talk about enough that I'm going to say a few words about today is the ways in which like athletes were systematically targeted who were part of the movement right. like it was really important. I mean, this was in Bahrain. This was in Egypt. Uh, they went after the athletes. Right. Big numbers. Right. They had a whole department in Bahrain with a list of it. And they put 150 athletes in prison and tortured them. And these are people who are very famous. Like the, 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 these are the LeBron Jameses and Steph Currys right. and uh, Brittany Griners of uh, Bahrain. And they, they brutalized them.
0: So what is the social responsibility of athletes at this moment? Well, I
2: think there's the responsibility. I mean, as Alice Walker said, you know, resistance is the secret of joy. There's a responsibility to resist and figure out how to resist uh, in, in more difficult circumstances. So I try to look at some examples of what it means, like right now, to speak out against the Dobbs decision, for example, and I talk about a couple of examples, what it means to uh, express solidarity with trans people, particularly trans kids in the world of sports, why it's important to defend Brittany Griner and fight for her to come home and put pressure where it should be, which is on the Biden administration to do their job and get her home. I mean, these... Th- these are things that, that athletes can do. I think looking at labor in sports is really important. The minor leaguers have just uh, organized, themsel- uh, organized themselves. And after decades, they have the Major League Players Association, which is one of the strongest unions in the United States, working to organize the minor league players. And, you know, the average baseball player makes about uh, $4 million a year. The minimum is 700 grand a year. And an average minor league player... Makes between five grand and 14 grand a year. Wow. Um, Poverty rages, they all have second jobs. Right. It's like seasonal work. Right. And meanwhile, the gap, as anyone will tell you, between, say, a decent major leaguer and a AAA player is razor thin. Wow. You know, if you're a AAA player, you're one of the best players in the world, and whether or not you make the team is is a whim. And this was something I always banged the gong about uh, in the so-called steroid era in Major League Baseball: is how can you not expect people to take performance enhancing drugs when the rewards when the margins are so thin and the rewards are so great?
0: Yeah, I mean the the uh, it's absolutely. Incentivized. I mean, yes. it's like teachers are incentivized to be stupid because all mm. that counts is the test score. They're inci- incentivized to cheat mm-hmm. uh, because that's all that counts. And, and that's a catastrophe for the enterprise.
2: really. Yeah. And that, that showed up in school districts, of course, of course, where I live in D.C. Huge scandal under the long time ago superintendent, but whose imprint is still on the system, Michelle Rhee. The worst. Yes. I mean,
0: she was really, the, the For me, worst. Uh, uh, really the worst. Um, y- y- you talk about the responsibility of athletes, and the chorus that's going to respond to you says, athletes should stay in their lanes. Mm-hmm. What's your response to that?
2: My response to that is, is, first of all, I would say, should Muhammad Ali have stayed
0: in his lane? Well, some people would say yes.
2: Some people would say yes, yes. even to this day. Exactly. They would say yes. So if they said yes to me, about that, I, w- I guess I would, I would ask the question about why do politics just have to be for people with bad haircuts on Capitol Hill? Right. And isn't being political all of our responsibility? And why should you sign your way a right to be political just because you're an athlete? And would you tell you know somebody who you know worked in an office that they weren't allowed? I mean, this is about citizenship. I right. just saw you write down the word well, citizen, I, I wrote Bill. It down, but, but you're right because, yeah. you know, for, from uh, the, the the incredible... Uh, experience that see these it 's so funny because these days, if you talk about fighting for citizenship it 's got that weird edge about uh, you know uh, American nationalism and uh, you know, all the rest of it, you know, it's like citizen, are you, you know, undocumented, all this weird stuff. But you know very well that in the black freedom struggle, calling for full citizenship was a radical demand. Absolutely. And this idea of being the full citizen meant that you were treated like a human being in a exactly. dehumanizing society.
0: Exactly. And, and the reason I wrote the word citizen down is because you wrote a recent article about Serena Williams and mm-hmm. you quoted Claudia Rankin's book. Yes. Citizen. Yes. Um and I was interested in that why a short article and you singled out Claudia Rankin's outstanding I did. book.
2: Partly because I think the book is outstanding. And when I write, it's one of the joys of writing is you can name drop things that have had particular influence on you. And I thought what Claudia Rankin um got got a finger on the pulse of, which is so important, is that the difference between, say, Serena And say a Muhammad Ali, and this is one of the reasons why I think Serena had the greatest athletic career in the history of sports, is that Muhammad Ali, as a black man wanting to be a boxer, there was space for him to be that. Then of Mm -hmm. course he tried to be more. And and, he was more. And he was more and it was policed ruthlessly. Right. But Serena Williams to me like I I think of her as like a sporting demolition expert. (laughs) Like she had to blow out space. In the cave to find space for her to exist. Right. She never conformed. She never said, "I'm just going to get in where I fit in." She was always, um, always herself. Yeah. And I think that, in and of itself, has has a certain power particularly as a black woman, uh, and particularly invading from a class issue, invading this country club space coming from the public courts of Compton. But she had to create that space for herself because it was not built for her.
0: And all the tribute she's getting now, I mean, I think that's what people point to, is that she, it's her humanity that shined through in a very difficult situation.
2: Extremely. I mean, so many difficult situations. We're speaking of someone who almost died during childbirth. And and
0: speak a minute about that, because that's common, right? Yes. I mean,
2: oh, among black women, the um, the mortality rate for childbirth is, is a national crime, a national sin, and, and the fact that she received substandard medical care, given her wealth, and given her station, and, and I mean, is is such a stirring indictment of right. this country. And you know, and it's also like right now at 41, she could probably still keep playing. But she, she's been very honest about the fact that she wants to have another baby. Right. She's 41. And at her age, it's about making a choice. Right. And for so many women that, that resonated. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are so attracted to her, because she's she's not um, she's not superhuman. Like there's something about her that's just incredibly human Yes, that people relate to.
0: Yeah. You know, this, back to this question of staying in your lane, I, I'm, you know, the the arrogance of saying, shut up and play, shut up and dribble is extraordinary, but it's, it's also an old theme. Very old. Uh, And the theme of saying to Martin Luther King, for example, when he came out against the war in Vietnam, that's not your lane, stay Mm -hmm. in your lane. And he addressed that eloquently and consistently um in in the late 1960s
2: absolutely um and i always think of this quote from james baldwin when he said that america is a country devoted to the death of the paradox like it kind of depends on the health of of capitalism of class rule for everybody to think that they only are what their job is And, our de- and how many times, I mean, when we all do this. It filters down to the culture. Like, how many times have you ever been at a, a party or a get-together, and one of the first things people ask you is, what do you do? Right. And then when you answer that question, they draw 50 assumptions immediately about who you are based on what you do. And I think that that's dehumanizing. I mean, we're so much more than our jobs. Right. And I think that when people devote themselves to Killing the paradox. Right. Uh, I mean, devote themselves to living the paradox. Right. I should say it, it's it it, it isn't of itself an act of resistance. Right like i'm not just a school teacher i'm a school teacher guitar player i'm a school teacher poet i'm a school right. teacher activist right this is what feeds my soul you know right, right. And, and getting getting beyond you know how we pay the bills
0: i'm interested though you're in your work because you don't stay in your lane either no. uh, and yet they have you on espn now and then i'm always <laughs> tickled to find you there but uh but you you use sports Partly as a metaphor, partly as a launching pad, to talk about culture, to talk about freedom, to talk about liberation, to talk about all the problems, racism and so on. Say a word about not staying in your lane.
2: Sure. Um, first, first and foremost. Uh, (laughs) ESPN went under new management And then all of a sudden I stopped getting phone calls I noticed
0: that, I didn't realize It's
2: it's just like, it's completely because of They put out a statement that they weren't going to be as political That they didn't want to offend people They did all this literally right before the summer of 2020 When the sports world exploded in solidarity With people marching in the streets After the police murder of George Floyd So but their timing was not exactly uh, perfect. What they were trying to do was, honestly, was was sort of get ahead of the curve on the backlash. Right. So ESPN, you know, CNN is doing it right now. This right. idea of we're going to appeal to the right wing. Right when the right wing is exposing itself as particularly fascistic, you're going to start saying, well, we're going to do both sides here, uh, democracy and the death of democracy. It's like, don't you realize what year it is and what time it is? We're we're not debating tax cuts anymore. We're not debating future plans to curb the growth of social security. We're debating like the very existence of even a semblance of bourgeois democracy here And, and the alternative is ugly as hell.
0: Yeah, I Um, like your question. Don't you know what time it is? And so it makes me want to ask you, um, how do you name this political moment? Where are we?
2: Well, I think we're living in a time of, and this conference has sort of helped clarify my thoughts about this. I mean, we're certainly living in a time of great crisis. And we're living in a time of great reaction and the rise of authoritarianism, particularly in the United States. But we're also living in a time, I see, of possibility. And it's so important that we generalize from the hope that does exist. So, you know, as someone who lived in Chile um, for myself, seeing them possibly get rid of the old Pinochet constitution and build a constitution built on principles of human rights and the election of somebody who is part of the grand student movements, you know, that, that gives me hope and inspiration. Revolutionary processes in Sudan give me hope and inspiration. Resistors around the world give me hope and inspiration. Um, in the United States, you know it, it it it's tough but when i see the starbucks workers when i see the amazon workers when i see the beginnings of student organizing after a period where you haven't seen it you know that gives me a sense of hope but i don't want that hope to cloud the fact that you know reaction is on the march right. you know i mean nazis they're still covering their faces but they're marching openly in cities in big numbers over a hundred in indianapolis yesterday right so we're having this conversation and i think it would be dangerous if we don't see uh the growing shadow yeah that's in this country
0: yeah um you lived in chile and i want to point out that my collaborator roxana is from chile um came here as a did not kid. know um and so when did you live there
2: 1995 and it was a very interesting time because pinochet was still in charge of the army but democracy had been restored although it was a very distorted kind of democracy because any time when i was there any time somebody in the government would say gee maybe we should do some truth and reconciliation here maybe we should find out who did all the torturing uh pinochet would just have like a march of soldiers through the streets of santiago as a show of strength and be like no you're not going to do that so it was a uh it it, it was a delicate time it was the first time i'd ever been on demonstrations that were combated with tanks and gas and things like that uh it was like no demonstrations I'd been to in the United States and right. that you didn't really have police lining the streets. It was more like you would turn a corner and there would just be a tank, right. you know, and people ready to, to, to beat your butt. In a lot of ways, it prepared me very well for the for the global right, for the mobilizations for global justice in the right. late 90s and right. early teens with just the presence of the state so clearly trying to stop you um but yeah chile changed my life without question are
0: you you were a jock in college right in no high, high school? school not in college
2: no <laughs> nice in, in college i could have played baseball um but i chose not to
0: okay yeah. same with my son malik he was a superstar in high school mm. went to college and realized that it would be his whole life. Exactly, and, and he moved on. You know, but exactly. But you too chose, much I
2: wanted to do in college. Yeah,
0: but you also became a journalist and a writer, yeah. and so you stayed in sports in a funny way. Even though, well, I
2: always loved sports. Yeah. Um, I was obsessed with it, independent of playing. Growing up, like followed everything, memorized every statistic. Right. Even though I didn't play sports in college, I was the uh, became the only four time sport they ever do they would do an annual sports trivia contest and i won it every year (laughs) that's great so i was the first person to win all four years they even did like an article about me (laughs) in the school paper doing it and they got the article i still have it just couldn't believe that like this uh you know this commie student was kicking all the jocks ass (laughs) And sports trivia it's perfect. Became like a curio.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because my son Malik, um, who was the big jock of my kids, um, he not only loved sports and continued to love sports, but I've contended to this day that he wouldn't have learned to read or do math without the sports pages. Yeah. And and now he's a math middle school math teacher for almost wow. twenty years. Yeah. But it was the sports that got him into doing math. He would mm-hmm. pick up the sports page and memorize it all it no, was sure. astonishing
2: no I remember being really young and having a really tough time with uh, multiplication and a friend of my mom saying to me like okay if Bernard King scores eight points in the first quarter what's he going to score for the game and I was like that's easy 32 <laughs> <laughs> perfect
0: <laughs> I, was like, so, I thought you
2: couldn't do math oh uh, yeah, okay
0: yeah exactly um, I heard you last time we saw each other um You were talking about the question, uh, which I think is a humorous and provocative question. And the question was, will there be sports under socialism? Yes. Say a word about that.
2: Well, it was a more uh, fun time politically. (laughs) So I could indulge in a fun talk as opposed to what's the role of athletes in an authoritarian society? Yeah. You know, it's a little more of a downer. But... I think that sometimes people on the left uh, ignore the fact that sports are very much a part of what it means to be human. Like you you read anthropology, I mean, as soon as people could clothe and feed themselves, they played games. And that's that's a beautiful thing. So that says to me that sports and organizing ourselves in competition that hopefully brings out the best in us and not the worst uh, is incredibly human. And of course, sports is distorted profoundly. By capitalism, by our culture of ruthless competition, by our culture of, you know, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. All, and I think that's total garbage. I coach. I coach rec basketball. And I, nice. I always say to, to, to my kids, uh, I say, like, look, the goal is to honor the sport. And if we happen to win along the way. Great. Mm -hmm. It's always more fun to win. Mm -hmm. But the goal is to honor the sport. And you go out there and you honor it through your play, through your intelligence, through your hustle.
0: You know, Bernadine and I were both little league coaches when our kids were young. And I was the worst. Uh Because she was great. Because she took your attitude. Honor the sport, but we want to win. I kind of said, if the kid in center field is sitting down smelling dandelions, ah, what's the difference, but the kids didn't feel that way, yeah, you know, and I was too loose, you know, yeah, I think I'd much
2: rather see too loose than too tough, oh though. of course, but uh. but but
0: you don't have to be either, you can be. Kind yeah. of on point, which it sounds like. Well, yeah. I mean, I want to use sports
2: uh, I, the, the way that a guy I know named Joe Ehrman, who's a football coach in uh, Baltimore, uses sports. He's a former Baltimore Colt, and he started this organization called uh, the Positive Coaching Alliance. And mm-hmm. he's my hero when it comes to this stuff. And the way we met was um, he got in touch with me. And after I wrote a People's History of Sports in the United States, which of course is part of the Howard Zinn People's History series, and he got in touch with me, and he said, "You know, reading Howard Zinn changed the way I coach." Mm. And all he had to do was say that sentence to me, right. and I was, <laughs> right? I was like, "You had me at hello, buddy." Yeah. You know, let's talk. Right. And he got into his whole philosophy of it to me, and winning does matter to it competition does matter to it but he said the fundamental thing that matters to it and this is what he got from zinn is like have you transformed yourself as a person who believes in fighting and standing with others and she's like this is how you can use sports if you do it the right way
0: you know i had a colleague at the university of illinois chicago Named Don Hellison, and he wrote a book called Beyond's Bats and Balls, mm. and he was part of a movement of scholars. Um, they called it humanistic sports, but I co-taught with him a couple of times, and he would have kids in the gym th- thinking about ethics as they played. I mean, you know, he'd have ways to get them thinking about what, how much is self-care? How much is mutual aid? How much is, you know, uh, are we helping each other and so mm-hmm. on? It was really, really a beautiful guy. He
2: beautiful. Yeah. And it's so important. And we forget that out of, during periods of struggle, like in the late 60s and early 70s, you get people like Jack Scott who was attempting, uh, and he got the chance at Oberlin, where he was, for a short period of time, athletic director, and then they quickly got rid of him when they realized how radical he was. He hired Tommy Smith to be the track coach. Right. But he had this whole plan about sports being used as a way to build capacity and organization Mm. and, um, you know, and... sectors of power for people who wanted to change the world. Now, that might sound like too high a goal if there are any coaches listening right now, but you really start it just by having, especially if you coach boys, like, to have an opportunity to speak to them about why things like sexism and homophobia and racism have no place in a locker room, mm-hmm. how you have to see everybody as, you know, a, a, in the, to use the language of sports, like, that's your brother next to you, mm-hmm. turn around, like, mm-hmm. the, these are the people that you, you know, you're going to link arms with, and I'll tell you, my son plays high school sports, and I always um, give a serious inquisition to the coach beforehand, because I think that particularly boys sports when left to its own devices can be very toxic mm-hmm. and create this kind of messed up at, we've seen too many examples of it to ignore that and not see it as something where there is an inherency to that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, if you're just like, you got to win or die and you, you can be a real man and don't you cry mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And like th- that, that will breed something very toxic. Mm-hmm.
0: Malik is coaching little league. Um, his kids are playing but one of the things I like about his coaching, besides his inclusiveness and these lessons, but, is he always says to the kids, I see you. And he's always saying, I see mm. what you're doing, and I admire it. And he gives everybody those kind of props, always with the idea that I'm, you're visible to me. You're not a, a cog in my machine. You're mm-hmm. three-dimensional. You know, back to the question of sports under socialism. I've told the story of hearing you speak a, a zillion times. Oh. I've forgotten most of it. But I remember <laughs> two things, because... As you said earlier, story is what you remember, um, narrative, uh, memoir, and so on. Um, But I remember you saying, under socialism, you can bring your own beer to the ballpark. Yes, and that I, stayed with me. You know? Yes,
2: as opposed to spending nine dollars for a beer. Yeah, with well, it. watered down, exactly. watered down crap. Um, I think, yeah, in a socialist society, I, I guess we, we, I got, I'm sorry, I got us off topic here a little bit. Um, I think people would play sports certainly because it's part of what it means to be human because it's a form of art. But people would do it in a certain kind of way. And then mm-hmm. in the talk, I went through how sports could look mm-hmm. and include. Inclusive model of sports, mm-hmm. one that wasn't predicated so much on ability as desire to play, mm-hmm. uh, something that tried to involve everybody, something that, you know, you could have different levels of competition, but you would never try to create a hierarchy where some people are somehow better than others. Uh, you would eliminate, to me, the iron wall that exists the steel curtain, if you will, between participant and fan Mm. and start to get people moving a little bit. That Mm -hmm. was Jack Scott's
0: dream. I remember Jack saying that. And and I also think of Cuba when you say this. Yes. Everyone plays. Everyone in, nobody out.
2: There's tremendous modeling in Cuba about how sports operates. Um, particularly, you know, they have the academies there for baseball as exist in Venezuela and the Dominican Republic. But if you look at Dominican Republic and Venezuela, it's very churn and burn. Mm-hmm. Like they get the players in, then they put, you know, push them out and they throw them on the scrap heap. And in Cuba, the, the, from my research is that there's an educational component. There's a way they try to facilitate them becoming coaches and, you know, people who work. I know we have some doors opening and closing That's behind okay. I just want you to know it doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't
0: bother me either. Yeah, um, I don't it's mind It's great. It. The other thing you said in that talk was you said that, um, which I didn't know, you said that the uh, elevated train in Chicago was a private enterprise until after World War II, mm. and then it became a public enterprise. And you said, why not the Sox and the Cubs and the Bears. Yeah. Why aren't they a public enterprise? Yeah,
2: like why can't teams be public utilities, particularly if we're putting money into the stadiums? Right. Why can't when you buy a ticket to see a team, you know that you're somehow supporting libraries, you're supporting schools, you're supporting the common good. I mean, one of the problems with 2022 in this country, and I blame both parties for this, is we've lost this idea of a common good. Right. And the idea that you can compel government to do things that actually... Help people, right, and reduce the misery of their lives.
0: Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, it blows uh, your mind. But uh, or, I think,
2: or, or Biden, in the same speech, saying um, that you know we're going to fight semi-fascism, and then saying, oh, and we've got hundred thousand more cops coming. Yeah, it's,
0: it's insane. On the streets,
2: what, what, what did what did uh, Rage say? Some who. Uh, are part of forces, are the same who burn crosses. Exactly,
0: exactly. I want to ask you one other thing, which is, um, there's been a lot of rethinking across the culture, and certainly in sports. A lot of documentaries about about athletes, a, a lot of um, rehabilitation or resurrection of people who were written off. And of course there are the heroes, Jackie Robinson and mm-hmm. so on. But, but I, I'm interested in your take on some of the current popular culture films about jocks and also some of the some of the do- documentaries.
2: Well, there's a lot of great content that's been produced in recent years. Um, And I think, frankly, what it took was the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, without a doubt. Which tragically means, um, as my friend Howard Bryant, who's a sports writer, always points out, uh, that meant the deaths of people like Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner. So it took death to create... Took. To create movements, mm. which then change the culture. Mm. And that, that's a pretty heavy concept if you think about it, because it, it, it means like, okay, we, we really liked the Ken Burns documentary about Muhammad Ali, for example. But did it really need to take people dying in the streets for us to have to get it? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we like these re-examinations of Jackie Robinson, of Tommy Smith, of John Carlos. We like that Kaepernick is about to get the documentary treatment. Um, but wh- why did, Why in this society must it take blood to spark and spur these kinds of important historical re-examinations? Even something that I just saw which moved me greatly, which was um, Manti Teo, Uh, The famous Notre Dame linebacker who dated the woman, he was catfished, and so he dated the woman who didn't exist. And he was finally talking about his story a decade after the fact, as did the person who catfished him, and they they were both interviewed. And the fact that ESPN even said to themselves, let's make something that humanizes Manti Teo, to me, is a legacy of the way athletes have expressed their own humanity because of these movements. Right. So it's really all connected. Right. Because when you can thingify an athlete, that means you can thingify a human being. Right. And movements are what provide us with humanity in the face of thingification.
0: Right. One last question. This is a seminar on freedom. Maybe you'd say a word about as a longtime freedom fighter and on the freedom path. What is freedom to you?
2: Uh, Freedom a thousand percent to me is Mm -hmm. self-determination. And by self-determination, I don't just mean for countries. I don't just mean for groups of people. I mean for the individual. Mm -hmm. Like, I I think I want to live in a world and I have too many friends who spend too many hours working jobs that that they find soul deadening. And so to me freedom means you can devote you're not defined just by your work and you can devote your time uh, To pursuits that enrich your soul and enrich your community That to me is freedom is when you can find that space to work mm-hmm. towards the common good mm-hmm. Because most people don't even have the hours in the day to do it,
0: right? Well, Dave's iron. I can't thank you enough for spending time with us um, oh. You 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 have been an inspiration to me and I want everybody to go out and play hard and play mm. fair.
2: Thanks so much, Bill. And, and absolutely likewise to you. you. Total inspiration.
0: Thank you, sir. That was an interesting conversation. We're back. And now let's finish up uh, this episode of the podcast. Lady, you said you had a little homework.
1: Uh, Yes. So my homework is to um, find out who paid for the professional sports venues in my region, how much public money or taxes went to these private profit centers, how much profit do the owners realize, and how much of that profit is shared with you.
0: Wow. That's a heavy research task.
1: folks let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams let's try to stay all the way human
0: thanks to our friends at the dazzling podcast ergo to my co-conspirators light i and roxana espos and to palace shaw for producing and engineering go forward keep rising and make your life more playful A joy in my heart and freedom on my mind until next time